Hello, and welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we explore the line of duty deaths of firefighters and paramedics to learn from these ultimate sacrifices. These podcasts are a brief synopsis of the events that we've obtained from official reports and published stories. We wanted to provide an easy and convenient method for today's firefighters to quickly learn the lessons of past line of duty deaths and possibly prevent them from happening again. You can follow us on Twitter at podcasttraffic.twitter.com or email us with your comments and thoughts at emergencytrafficpodcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Paul Prebo. I'm a retired Deputy Fire Chief in Western Canada. And please welcome my co-hosts, Doug and Dirk. These fellows are career firefighters in a large metropolitan fire service here in Western Canada. Hey, hello, Doug. And hello, Dirk. Hello. Hey, Paul. Hey. This podcast, first one inaugural podcast, will explore the tragic deaths of four firefighters and injuries to several other firefighters and civilians in the area when it occurred. We're going way back 25 years ago to 1993 in a rural farming area of Warwick, Quebec, which is northeast of Montreal. On July 27th, the local volunteer fire department got a call for a barn fire, a barn on fire. The 911 call came from a neighbor a couple miles away. There's a fire at the nearby farm, she said. The husband of the caller responded to the fire thinking that it may be his daughter's home. But upon arrival, he discovers a nearby dairy barn is fully involved. Fire breaking out through the first floor windows. There's also a fire coming out intermittently from the relief valve on the nearby 4,000 liter or 1,000 gallon propane tank located a few meters from the barn. The valve is operating every few minutes and whistling loudly. Loudly, The relief valve operates about three times before the firefighters arrive on scene. Um, we were just talking tonight at supper, Dirk, about a, a fire in uh, one of the cities, cities where you work, where yeah. a propane tank, it was a construction site or something? It was a construction and, site, yes. And the pro, pro, propane tank levied and and blew up and ricocheted and almost hit a firefighter. So wow. it was a pretty close call. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of why we're doing these podcasts, right? Just to wake people up and to think about these hazards when they respond to a scene. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find a lot of background on the Warwick Fire Department from back in 1993. From the pictures I found in some old news videos, it shows a two-door commercial side-mount fire engine likely with a 4,000 liter minute pump and a 2,000 liter tank on the scene. From the reports that I have read, there was also a water tender that responded and the firefighters were preparing to set up a portable tank, water tank for supply upon arrival. Typical rural in the 90s, there wasn't a lot of big pumper tankers or apparatus that had large water tanks and Warwick's very small town. It might've been a secondhand unit from a city or something like that, which typically a city's 2000 liter tank is pretty normal unless, and then you have a, a tender or a tanker coming for more water supply, well, even, right? Even today, lots of rural fire departments, all you're getting is a, a engine and a tender, maybe, right. maybe four doors on the engine. Maybe. Maybe yeah. four guys on the truck. Yeah. The four door cabs didn't start coming out till, in the commercial chassis, they were not common until the 90s, really. A lot of two doors. And I mean, lots of small places you don't know what you're getting, right? Right. Response. That's the big problem is you don't know what you're going to get. And that's exactly the problem these guys faced. 
There were several investigations completed on the incident, one by the CSST, which is Occupational Health and Safety Agency in Quebec. And there was also a coroner's report and a criminal investigation and a trial on suspicion of manslaughter and arson. But more about that later. The only information I was able to source through was a case summary of the incident and some YouTube uh, news report videos. The fire call came in about nine o'clock in the morning. The temperature was 21 degrees Celsius with a northeast wind. I got that from uh, Weather Government of Canada. The first arrival on scene was the previously mentioned side mount engine. For the apparatus buffs in the crowd, it's about a 1970s vintage two-door commercial. Looks like an international chassis with a TiVo body with the old rack on one side for hanging the turnouts and helmets on the on the side for the firefighters responding in their personal vehicles to dawn on scene and from being the 70s of course the engine was yellow the right color for engines right absolutely so, not. very controversial <laughs> very my dad actually in the 70s bought a white engine so and then subsequently i've seen pictures they painted the bottom half of the cab red make it two-tone which is personally my favorite i can like usually switch the colors with a new chief new chief comes in new colors come in that happens yeah, yeah. yeah that happens. i know a town in central alberta they put a wrap they wanted the black on top because a lot of places are doing the chicago style red on the bottom and the black on top and the town has black in the name so he says we got to have some black fire trucks so uh, they did a, a black wrap on the top section of the trucks rather than painting them looks pretty neat, i think must be nice to have a budget for that well, it's expensive painting oh, fire trucks. It's yeah. like wrapping nowadays is cheap. Repainting a fire truck used to be like twenty grand. All over again. Instead yeah. of just leaving it the way it was. I remember when I used to sell fire trucks. Uh, what's the county around LA? You know, Las Vegas, Clark County, and they're yellow, mm -hmm. and they like to buy stock trucks. But very rarely did manufacturers have stock yellow trucks. So uh, that's uh, that's pretty uh, difficult, and repainting them usually isn't uh, isn't an option. I actually saw a, I actually uh, had a, a white demo built once, uh, articulating platform, and I painted it white. And the bosses were like, "Hang on a minute, how we're not going to build a white platform as a demo?" And I said, "No, no, I got it sold. I got it sold. It'll be sold. Don't worry." So, luckily, it got sold, and uh, it's actually in Cochrane. And it's articulating platform, and it's white. And it was a demo first. And I sold a lot of demos that way. I sold yeah. a demo off the show floor in FDIC one time to Alliston, Ontario for the Honda plant there. Cause they got mm -hmm. a big Honda plant and they bought a, bought a platform mm -hmm. and they bought it right off the show floor. That was pretty cool. Yeah. It just looks too much. Like an Did they drive it home? No, they didn't drive it <laughs> home. No, had to deliver it. All right. Well, back to the fire truck got me distracted there. So 25 yeah, that'll years. Be another episode. That'll be another episode. <laughs> yep, yep. Do the fire truck podcast. So from the investigation, it states that the propane tank was installed on the site at the farm in October of 1992, not quite a year before the fire. The fuel was to heat the barn and supply a hot water tank. Yeah, it's a dairy barn. The involved part of the structure was a calf barn uh, attached to the dairy barn. The barn was stick built, sort of a class five structure with wood stud framing and metal sheeting on the exterior walls and the roof. And the interior walls were covered with plywood according to the reports I read. It was estimated that the time of the fire, there was about how the propane tank was about half full at 2,100 liters or 550 gallons of propane in the tank, 55% of capacity. 
The fire from the building was impinging on the one side of the propane tank, which was causing the pressure to rise and activate the safety relief valve intermittently to relieve the excess pressure. The venting propane was igniting from the nearby fire, uh, impinging on the tank. So the propane, the safety valve would vent and then the propane would light up and burn off. One must keep in mind that as the venting of the propane is relieving the rising internal pressure of the tank, it also reduces the volume of propane inside the tank. When the propane reaches about 115 degrees Fahrenheit, the pressure rises about 250 PSI and the safety relief valve opens. The reaction is endothermic, which means it makes it cold. So uh, it actually cools the liquid propane temperature, which then uh, can affect the metal of the tank where the propane is in contact, but not the metal in areas above the level of the liquid propane where the fire may be impinging, thereby possibly weakening the metal. The fire response upon leaving the fire station. Okay, so no, about the fire response. So when they left the fire station, the firefighters reported seeing a large column of black smoke and the response took about 12 minutes. On the arrival in the yard, the relief valve on the propane tank was venting with flames about 10 meters or 30 feet high above the tank. Also flames were blowing out of the destroyed windows of the barn impinging on the side of the tank. <clears throat> the first firefighters positioned the apparatus or the engine for drafting operation with a portable tank and a tender shuttle, and they also deployed two hand lines. From the pictures, it looks like it must have been the typical Cisco load, we used to call it, uh, probably off the rear hose bed, which was typical for a rural hitch, be some 65 or two and a half inch line with a leader line Y or a two and a half by two, two inch and a half Y. Hand lines with nozzles. The nozzles look like the old Imperial PDQ nozzles, which were sort of 70s era. So they were still in service in the 90s on this department. While the firefighters are setting up and donning the gear, etc., some of the firefighters started flowing water streams off of the tank supply. Another firefighter is backing up the water tender to dump into the portable tank. Pretty typical rural barn fire operation. Pull a Cisco and start uh, knocking the fire down. One of the fire streams was directed at the propane tank to cool it from the impinging flames and heat. The other is likely attacking the fire in the barn. During this time, setup time, the safety relief valve on the tank is operating intermittently for 30 to 40 seconds, every 30 to 40 seconds. It does this three more times, according to the witness statements, while the water's flowing now for about a minute on the tank. There actually was a brief discussion amongst the fire officers on the scene about the engine placement, and perhaps it might need to relocate the engine to a more protected location but the tender is ready to fill a port tank already on the ground. So they're kind of committed to where they, uh, to where they stopped. Doug, were you at that fire where I'd started flowing water from a port tank and the chief got on scene and decided to move the port tank? I was at that fire. Yes. Yeah. And it was about it 45 was minutes before show. they got everything yes, going. And, uh, yeah, they moved the chief absolutely demanded that we move the portable tank onto the highway so the tankers could dump easily, even though we were in a large yard where large trucks come and there was lots of room everywhere and uh, the barn burned down. Even and, though the uh, way we were doing it was perfectly fine. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was so frustrated sitting in that pump panel with no water for about 40 minutes while my friend's farm was burning down. But yeah. uh, he's not there anymore, that chief. 
Big surprise there. Weird, after too long. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but yeah. uh, enough on that. Moving subject. on. Moving on. <laughs> then suddenly, an explosion or blevy. Boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion of the propane tank. The tank split into two pieces, one of which appears to have landed on the rear of the fire engine and the nearby house. The fire engine body was significantly damaged, according to the pictures. The other piece traveled through the air and struck a passing pickup truck on the roadway, seriously injuring the occupant. Can you imagine that? You're driving down the road, you're looking at this yeah, fire. What are the odds of that? And all of a sudden, boom, this propane tank flies into you and landed right on the cab. Beautiful old 70s uh, Chevy pickup. Anyway, um, the firefighter directing the hose stream on the tank was propelled by the blast into the side of a building and then 150 feet or 45 meters across the yard, and he was fatally injured upon impact. Three other firefighters that were donning their gear near the fire engine were also fatally injured, and a few others sustained significant injuries in the area. And several other bystanders, including the first person on scene, the fellow whose wife called it in, was also injured. It was obviously now a major incident for the community and a significant loss of four volunteer firefighters in this small rural community back in 1993. Subsequent investigations of the incident revealed numerous questions. As to the response and direction of the fire crews, it appeared that they applied relatively standard firefighting tactics for a small rural structure fire, possibly not a fully involved fire in a large structure, which this barn was. And that's typical. I've read lots of these NIOSH reports where they apply residential fire tactics at a a non-residential fire. Like uh, you said, you were talking about that one where you had the blevy dirk. Yeah. And uh, they stretch the pre-connects, which everybody does, right? You grab the pre-connect, let's go. You run out of But it's an apartment complex, so you can't get there. So you extend, 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 and And then then, uh, the pump runs in uh, high idle. You got no pressure. No pressure, no No water. No water. So all the problem was we couldn't couldn't recool that tank at all. Not enough. It couldn't get close enough. The radiant heat from the construction side was enormous. Enormous, like yeah. Melting, melting siding off a building while firefighters actually yeah. applying water to it. That, I've never seen anything like that before. That so, fire you were talking about reminded me of, there was a big uh, Earlton condo complex in Calgary that caught fire on a May, windy, hot May, 1996 or something. And uh, condo condo thing, a whole block of condos under construction. Some were already occupied and some were under construction. It caught fire. And they, I think Calgary had, I don't know, five or seven ladders working that fire. They had every rescue in the city there, hauling air bottles and uh, their big Bronto. And um, they actually, a transformer exploded beside one of the aerials and took out all the glass in the truck. And some of the other aerials, the compartment doors were bowed out from the heat, you know. So, are we going? No, <laughs> lights are flickering here. Um, anyway, yeah, those a lot of fuel, right? Those uh, cons- buildings under construction, oh, yeah. a tremendous amount of fuel. Yeah. This wasn't a building under construction, although a barn is almost because typically the inside's exposed and stuff like that. So, yeah, so anyway, these tactics they used, how we see that in many line of duty death reports, employing residential tactics in a commercial or industrial setting. We tend to do what we're used to, we always pull a pre connect. But remember, for a small rural fighting force, a large barn fire would be a relatively uncommon event. It's not like they'd get these every year. One could question the use of the 38 millimeter hand lines for a fully involved barn fire, but we're creatures of habit. 
and water conservation is a significant factor in handline consideration. I remember when I began firefighting back in the 80s, uh, we were berated if we opened the nozzle flow beyond the 30 GPM in the country. <laughs> uh, they're bugging me about my age now. 1880s. <laughs> Riding on the tailboard, yeah. But uh, yeah, we weren't allowed, don't open that nozzle. Contrary to the more modern belief that a larger amount of water over a shorter period of time properly positioned is much superior to a small amount over a longer period of time to knock down the fire. Learned a lot of that with all those uh, UL, FSRI studies they've done with uh, water mapping inside the room and stuff like that. Now they're talking, you know, hit it hard uh, from, you know, through the window if you can, if it's fully yeah, exposed. We don't like that, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, was, I didn't say hit it hard from the yard. I just said hit it hard from the position. What's, the, what's, what's that? The slicers, right? Hit it hard from the hallway. Hit it hard from the a position inside of safety yeah. and then yeah, exactly. and knock it down. Of course, you got your smooth bore. Uh, Dirk and Doug are uh, big uh, nozzle forward guys. So, um, they what's the fellow's name? Aaron, Aaron Fields. Fields. Aaron Fields, yeah. And they came and did some training for me in my uh, previous fire department, which was great. How to move and and uh, attack at the same time. Um, so yeah, it might be better sometimes to, and maybe in this case, it might have been better to hit the barn fire and not worry about the propane tank. There were two options apparently for apparatus placement in this yard. There was an opportunity to place the apparatus in a safer location, but afterthought is often 2020. Some opinions were given that officers should have detected, directed the streams at the direct fire attack from defensive positions to reduce the main body of fire, possibly stopping the flame impingement on the tank rather than trying to cool the tank. The elephant in the room here is a propane tank. The firefighters on scene may not have expected a large propane tank. Clearly there was concerns about it with the repositioning discussion that happened just before the explosion and the application of water to the side of the tank while it was venting to try to cool it. The case study theory that I've read from this case study is that the cold water stream hitting the very hot steel of the upper tank space with no propane to cool it may have caused the tank to rupture in what they call a banana effect from the extreme temperature differentials during the flame impingement and the water stream application. The blevy occurred some 20 to 90 seconds after stream application on the tank. And uh, we're going to cover in some more of these podcasts, some other propane tank explosions and stuff where people have been, been hurt by propane tanks uh, letting go. And it's always a tricky situation. You know, they say, put some lines on and keep the tanks cool, especially get the train derailment thing. We had that Gainford train derailment uh, up on uh, Highway 16 west of Edmonton, and they were cooling the tanks because the other ones were flaring, and they hauled a whole bunch of water. They actually did the vent and burn there where they actually used explosives to dynamite and make holes in the tank and burn the product off. Cool. Yeah. You have to, you ever watch that video? YouTube you game. Blow up whole houses and then we don't have to put water. And there you go. Make it much easier. Right? Yeah. Uh, the owner of the farm had left the farm after doing the morning chores to attend a local restaurant with his wife. The owner was subsequently charged with arson for the purposes of insurance fraud and manslaughter for the line of duty deaths of the four firefighters. The case went to trial for manslaughter, but the farmer was acquitted of the charge due to whatever circumstances. I don't have the details on that. And apparently the arson was dropped. He just went for the manslaughter, but he lost or the farmer won. 
So the discussion that I had for topics on this one was like, again, we talked a little bit about the non-residential tactics at commercial industrial fires. And we see that over and over again. I mean, if you've got this huge wall of fire, the car dealership's going up when you pull up, don't grab the 44 mil pre-connect unless you've gone to the really big pre-connects some places. Did Edmonton used to use two inch? No? There's one department out here, Edmonton, I think they used to use two inch uh, pre-connects and stuff. Um, and, I mean, way before my right. Time. I mean, I was, I remember down east and where they had lots of condo complexes in New Jersey, they told me they had some really long pre connects, like 300 feet long or 400 feet long, just in case they needed to get into these complexes and there's cars everywhere and you can't drive the rig in. It's just tough because everybody is a creature of habit, right? So, and that's what you're grabbing every bread and butter is a single family dwelling. You get it in your head. This is how we do it right. every single time. And you have to remember when you show up and it's not a single family dwelling. Yeah. You have to think different. Yeah. Grab that bigger and, line. And, and it's it's a hard habit to get into, especially if you get tunnel vision. Right. You, you're you you're there to spray water. So you grab the hose you're familiar with <laughs> and you, spray and you start spraying water. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's probably, I mean, I don't have a ton of uh, rural quick attack firefighting but it is a consideration you grab the big line with limited water supply if you don't win it might not be good in the long run yeah if you don't if, get it in the if, right place right if you can hit it hard and win with right. your limited water you look like a hero yeah but or if you hit it hard in the wrong spot or you lose your initial battle then you're starting all over way behind the eight. Yeah, Doug, yeah, I always, uh, you know, I always like these uh, where the guy pulls up with the deck gun and they nail the fire yeah. and knocks it down. And I've seen there was one in like Honolulu where the, the rig pulled up in the alley and the garage is on fire and they, you can hear the throttle, the good old uh, two stroke Detroit. Yeah. You can hear it throttle up and they pump the tank off and knock it down while they're waiting for the other rigs to come. The tank. The blitz attack, yeah. And there was one in Chicago or somewhere too, an apartment building, and there was a fire. And it was, I think the building was kind of open. It must have blown off. And anyway, they attacked it and it worked really well. But it's, I had the guys actually practice in my previous department. Uh, we made a four by four square, uh, wooden square, and we hung it from the tower ladder. And then I'd have them pull up with the pump. And I say, all I want you to do is dump the tank in that square. We hang it up 50 mm -hmm. feet in the air or 30 feet in the air, like a three-story walk-up apartment building. And I dump, dump it through the through the hole. And then go fill up. The next truck would do the same. The next truck would do the same. It's like, it takes skill. You don't just do that on your first try, right? Aiming the nozzle, opening it, yeah, adjusting well, the flow. It's, it's hard to do that, too, with lots of trucks now have uh, electronic... Remote deck control, guns, deck, remote guns. control yeah, deck guns, yeah, hard to move. It, and well, and it takes forever to get it deploy, to deploy it, and it does its whole startup sequence, and and then plus using the wrong direction, yeah, and right. So you have to step way back to so see you can see it because the truck's so tall, right? And then you have to go back to the pump panel, open it up, right? And if you haven't pre-pressure your waterway, then you'll drop a lot of water on the right. ground without the wrong, effect. wrong place. So that, that's what the bits attack is. It's basically a smooth bore. Usually a smaller diameter uh, smooth bore on the deck gun because you don't want to dump 5,000 liters. Well, you can't. Your tank, tank to pump lines are going to be 
the rating NFPA UL rating for tank to pump line is 2,000 liters a minute or 500 gallons a minute. So if you've got your uh, wide tip or your deck gun isn't automatic and it's set to the max, yeah. then you don't have enough water to get a good a good reach. A lot of guys don't know that. How come I can't get a reach out of the deck gun? You, if you're running off tank supply, it's maxed out it's at maxed 500 out. gallons a minute or yeah. 2,000 That's why all the pumps go to uh, those uh, so-called um, ground monitors. Right. Uh, quick yeah, attacks, like a blitz right? monitor. Or two and a half line, and then uh, you just hit them with that. They still flow 2,000 meters a minute. Right. So, and it's uh, easy to position if you got the yeah, manpower to pull it off. And and it, it pleases kind of like the guys that still believe in let's make this water last longer. Right. Instead of making a big dent, that gives you a good a good minute of constant water and it's flow. More precise to aim. More it precise, can, you can adjust it. You can move it. And one firefighter can deploy this thing. Right. And the nice thing is, once you have a, a water supply um, secured, you can leave this thing alone. Right. Put a pike in the ground, or whatever. But you can just leave them unattended for exposure protection. Right. So those those things are fantastic and would have been very good if they would have had something, something like, like that. that. A little, little like set it up monitor. and then you know, they didn't they didn't have them. those in the nineties. They had hose holders. And uh, actually, uh, one of the Western Canadian cities, uh, big cities in Western Canada, had hose holders on the trucks until oh about two thousand. It would hold a sixty-five uh, millimeter hose. You kind of pushed it in there and charged it, and it would have little feet, and then you had your nozzle on the end of the hose, and you'd just leave it. Instead, they didn't buy portable monitors. They just had those holes holders, which I hadn't seen until I got there, and they were still using them. But something like that way worked. Yeah, well, old is new again, I guess. Yeah, like right. smooth nozzles. Same as the, for, yeah. the today's, what, Blitzfire, Elkhart has one, I can't remember what they call it, and Akron is the Mercury. Mercury Quick Attack. Yeah, yeah, and they work, they work good. And TFT, TFT has the, we that's a Blitzfire. No brands. We, we shouldn't talk about brands, but yeah, anyway. Not until but, they start paying us. To pay them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then the other thing, of course, was the hazmat or awareness training. So as you know, uh, if you're going to be fully accredited as a, 1001 level one firefighter you're supposed to have taken what used to be 472 now 1072 uh, awareness and operations training uh, to be a firefighter a lot of places don't do that they do the 1001 but they don't do the 472 1072 and they kind of question well why but the thing is is that any firefighter today is going to come up on a hazmat whether it's a car fire or a propane tank or an electric vehicle battery or you name it, right? Uh, ammonia at the, at the skating rink, like the Fernie incident where they had ammonia leak, right? Um, you know, I mean, this happened on a farm, any right. farm. Yeah, is a, any farm is you're going to have propane, gasoline, diesel. Facility. Yeah. So that's the big thing is that really this was a hazmat call and a fire and that training would have been. There. It's tough in the volunteer world too, as opposed as I should say the rural world, as opposed to a major city can just either already has hazmat coming automatically based on where they're going. Right. Or it's a one radio transmission away right. dispatch sent hazmat. You get outside the big cities, you don't have that. I mean, you have a phone number, you can phone and talk to somebody, but it's it's hard because you i mean i can i can picture these guys showing up what are they supposed to do they don't have a hazmat team coming they only have so much water Barns on fire there's a fire in front of them yeah there's who knows how many guys and i mean i don't know what their level of training was or whatever but 
firemen want to fix the problem in front of them right now. It's, uh, I've gone it, to lots of fire where, yeah, cool a propane tank, cool a gas, the yeah. you know, the overhead farm tank, whatever. Right. Time of day makes a big difference too. If you right. approach it, you can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, it was in the morning. It was there. daytime. But yeah. if they come around the big bomb building and all they see is smoke and they come around, right. they're basically standing right in front of that propane tank. But we are not we're very good in backing out of those situations because we, yeah. think we can fix it as Doug said. But and they yeah. might have a little more uh, personal investment, a little bit where they might be farmers themselves and say, we have to save this barn because that's what this guy's livelihood is. Exactly. That's what they're they're doing, right? They're volunteering yeah. to help help their uh, people. I was just looking on the list for that other one. That's a propane uh, propane explosion, uh, Albert City, Iowa. Same kind of thing. Rural farm propane tank. They show up. Seven firefighters were were injured and two were killed. Right. We'll do that in a later episode. But it's just easy for it to happen. Okay. Good. Well, I hope everybody got something out of this uh, this podcast. You guys have anything else to add? No, no. Our inaugural podcast. We'll I see if we can so do much about hazmat because I don't like it. Ah, come on! <laughs> everybody hazmat. should. The hazmat guys, one of my favorite podcasts. I'm a ropes guy, so you're a ropes anyway. guy. Tr, you're a big tech rescue guy. All right. Well, signing off. Thanks everybody for listening, and remember, you can check us out on uh, Twitter, and or send us an email to what's the address? Emergency Traffic Podcast at gmail.com. Right or emergency traffic on Twitter.